Amen. Well, take your Bibles if you would and turn with me this morning to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. If you're visiting with us today, it is our normal habit to preach through books of the Bible. We usually rotate from Old Testament to New Testament. And this morning we find ourselves in the book of Joshua. This is our eighth week in the book of Joshua. Uh, We will continue throughout the spring and into the summer as we uh, just try to understand everything the Lord is saying to us through this book. And this morning we find ourselves at the end of Joshua chapter 5, right before getting into Joshua 6 in that very familiar battle of Jericho. This morning we'll be looking at the end of Joshua 5, specifically verses 13 through 15. If you'll find that place and hold it, I'll get there in just a minute. I went to seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And while I was there, I was on staff at a church in Durham, North Carolina, First Baptist Church of Durham. It was my job to work with international students at Duke University. And because so much of my life was in Durham and associated with the church, I lived in Durham and commuted back and forth to school. Which meant about four or five times a week, I was driving this two-lane road about 30 miles, Highway 98, from downtown Durham straight into downtown Wake Forest. One of the things I would see every single time I made this drive, leaving Durham, going to Wake Forest, on my right-hand side was an art gallery. Now, I want to make sure we have the same thing in our minds as we're picturing this. By art gallery, I mean there was an abandoned gas station on the right, and there had been string that had been taken from the gas station to various poles throughout the uh, parking lot of the gas station, and there was art that was hung. And by art, let me make sure that we're thinking about the same thing, various tapestries and all kinds of other things. I would say anything imaginable was there, but the problem was there were things there beyond your imagination, things that you could never guess were there, all hanging on those strings. Now, the nice artwork was really up at the front, and a lot of that was large and framed. It wasn't just hanging tapestries, it was framed art. I would say probably the Mona Lisa of the whole gallery was the life-size Velvet Elvis from the 68 Comeback Special. You know the one I'm talking about. It's Elvis at his best. It's when he's in the full leather black jumpsuit. I think the jumpsuit had buttons, just none of them were buttoned. From about here all the way up, it was opened with this large uh, collar. Uh, and there it was. And, and by the way, if you've never seen it, it's absolutely, it's a beautiful piece of art. A uh, perfect accoutrement for any home or trailer of distinction. It's just beautiful. Now, the curator of this art gallery was a savvy businessman. He understood both the culture in which he was, and he understood the significance of capturing different seasons. Now, what that meant is that every Christmas, as you would drive by, starting about at Thanksgiving all the way through Christmas, you would see all kinds of tapestries uh, about Santa Claus. So there would be Santa in his sleigh, Santa with his bag of toys, Santa drinking a Coca-Cola, all the different kind of Santas you can imagine were there to, to, you know, to celebrate the Christmas season. But knowing the community he was in, he also offered something else, a little bit distinct, you might not find anywhere. You could get white Santa, black Santa, or Hispanic Santa. Any of the Santas you wanted were all available right there for you. Now, at Christmas and Easter, particularly at Easter, he did a similar thing. Now, at Easter, he focused on Jesus. So there was the tapestry of the Lord's Supper. And if you have never seen the Lord's Supper in velvet, you've never, it's unbelievable. It's, it's just, it just shines in the sequins. And so there it is, the large Lord's Supper. That one was usually framed. And then 
Uh, you can see Jesus in the crucifixion. Uh, the ascension in velvet is also pretty staggering. I think if the lighting was right, it would be really great. Where Jesus is glowing, he's floating up in the heavens, about to send uh, to the Father. And so it is with Santa, you could choose which Jesus you wanted to take home. You could get white Jesus, black Jesus, or Hispanic Jesus. Now, to be fair, I, I, I don't really know what the original Santa looked like. I don't know if there was an original Santa, but I, I do know that Jesus was not a white American. He was a Middle Eastern Jew, meaning he looked a lot less like me and a lot darker skinned. You know, I, I told you I was on staff at First Baptist Durham. It was a beautiful old historic church, and everywhere throughout that church were large pictures of Jesus. And by pictures of Jesus, I mean hippie Jesus, you know, with the long robe and the, the sandals, the very long, flowing, well-conditioned hair. It looked like he had essential oils and composted and ate organic. You know, that Jesus. He was everywhere. We used to joke that if Jesus were ever to stop by the church, the first thing he'd say is, I just have a question, who's that guy and why is this picture everywhere? No matter what Jesus you wanted, you could, you could go here and, and buy one of these Jesuses. Now, I, I always looked at that and, and thought that it really pointed to something even a little bit more profound than that. The truth is, we all like to create a Jesus who looks like us. We all want a Jesus who loves the things that we love. We want a Jesus who hates the things that we hate. We want a Jesus that has the convictions that we have. It's not so much forming a Jesus that looks like us, but a Jesus who thinks like us. A Jesus who votes the way that we vote. A Jesus who has all of our same passions. And if we're not careful, what we're going to end up doing is forgetting that we have been created to bear the image of God. And instead of that, creating a God who bears our image. You see, the problem with this is, if we're not careful, we'll end up not following Jesus. We'll end up following ourselves. We'll end up not worshiping Jesus. We'll end up worshiping ourselves because we have simply created a God who is not a God at all, who's just like that's why I'm so thankful for passages like Joshua chapter 5. Because they reveal to us the true character of God. And they help us to see God as he really is, even if he's not like we thought he was going to be. Look at it with me in Joshua chapter 5. Now the story is, is that God is leading his people into the promised land. He has delivered them out of Egypt. He has brought them through the wilderness he is then taking them over the Jordan River on dry ground. And now they are waiting right here about to go into Jericho. And all of Joshua is about land. It's land, 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 land. But I've told you every week, it's not primarily about the land. The land is symbolic of something greater. It is pointing to God's desire to move his people into a place in which they experience life as it was meant to be. Even today, God's desire in bringing you to himself is so that you might be restored into experiencing life as God intended it to be. And all of this movement of God's people in the Old Testament is just a picture for us of what it means to walk with the Lord and what it means to come and to experience life. So here they are in a very tense moment. We're told that all of the nations know that the people of God are moving and Here's Joshua and about a couple of million Israelites right outside of Jericho with all of Jericho knowing that they're about to come and invade. And I don't know why it was, but it tells us that Joshua was out walking alone by Jericho. I don't know why he was there. I don't know if he was pacing. I don't know if he couldn't sleep. I don't know if he was 
just kind of looking over the situation, trying to understand exactly how the battle was gonna take place. I don't know if he was prayer walking. I don't know what he was doing. But in the midst of this very tense moment, Joshua was outside by himself near Jericho. And it says that while he was walking, he lifted up his eyes. And then it says, and behold, which is Hebrew for, uh uh-oh. There was a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. So picture this, it's not simply that he encountered a man with a sword, it's that he encountered a man whose sword was drawn. Now there's a difference in encountering a man with a gun and then encountering a man with a gun that has that gun drawn. This is Oconee County, you've encountered a hundred men already today who have a gun. But there's difference in having a gun that is drawn, at that very moment something in you feels a little bit different. It's not that he had a sword, his sword was out, it was drawn, not only revealing that he was some kind of warrior, but he was a warrior that was already ready for battle. It says Joshua, instead of being terrified by this, while he's out there all of the alone, all alone, it says that Joshua went to him in verse 13 and asked him a reasonable question. Here it is. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, this question is everything. This, this determines everything. If he's for us, this is, this is great news, right? Here's, here's a guy we didn't know about who apparently is ready to go to war, and we're about to go to war, and if he's with us, this is great. If he's not with us, this is absolutely terrifying. But Joshua out here alone has encountered a man whose sword was drawn to find out that this man is actually against us changes the situation. So Joshua feels it quite important to get some clarity on what's going on in this moment. So he asked this question, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Now the answer is a little bit strange. You remember the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? To which the man responds, no. <laughs> now that's not the answer to the question. I have no idea what Joshua was thinking at this moment, but you have to imagine that given the intensity of the, of the moment that Joshua wants to say something like this, sir, I, I, listen, I, I don't want to be this guy. I, I hate to do this to you, but can I just get a tad bit more clarity on your answer? I, when you say no, do you mean no, you're not for us or no, you're not for them? I just, I just feel like right now um, clarity is super important. Like We really need to, to understand the nature of our relationship right now. What do you mean by no? But that's all he got. You gotta know. And then the man identifies himself. Look what it says. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No, I'm not. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Which although at this moment doesn't answer Joshua's question, it does answer some other questions. One of them, which is this. Does the Lord have an army? Yes, Is there a massive army of heavenly hosts, all kinds of angelic beings that are warriors that probably don't look anything like the angels in the children's Bible? Yes. Does this army have a commander? Yes. Do they have a leader? Absolutely. And this is it. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, this should not be totally surprising to us. I don't know if you remember that story. You may have heard it before. It's about Elisha when he's about to do battle with the Syrians. So it's a, it's a very tense moment again that there's a small group of people, of God's people, who have to go against this massive army. And Elisha has an assistant. And the assistant looks at Elisha and said, Elisha, I don't know if you've seen this, but all the king's army is out here. How in the world are we going to do this? To which Elijah responds, don't worry. 
those who are with us are more than those who are with them. To which the servant goes, I appreciate your optimism, but that's actually not true. I'm, I'm looking. Like I see them and I see us and that's not true. So Elijah prays this prayer. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And all of a sudden, God opens the eyes of Elisha's servant and he now sees with spiritual eyes. And what he sees is that all of the mountain and hills are surrounded by the Lord's army, horses and chariots ready to do battle that could only be seen with the spiritual eye. The Lord has an army and Joshua is face to face with the commander of that army. You say, well, who is, who is the commander? Well, look at Joshua's response. It says, and Joshua, verse 14, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. His response can be summarized in two words, worship and submission. He gets on his face and he begins to worship the commander of the Lord's army. He then submits. He says, well, what do you have to say to me? I now bow myself before you. What what do you have to say? The fact is, is that he's never told to get up. He's never told to stop worshiping. As a matter of fact, he's told that the ground that he is on is holy and he should take off his shoes. Now, the last time we saw that happen was in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses encountered the very presence of God at the burning bush and the Lord said, take off your shoes, this is holy ground, revealing to us that the commander of the Lord's army is the Lord himself. This is the Lord himself. You don't worship angels, you worship the Lord. His response was the right one. And the reason his response was right is because this was the Lord. And then that helps us to understand why it is that the Lord responded by simply saying no. Are you for us or for your adversaries? No. In other words, the Lord doesn't align with us. He is on his own side. We align with him. He has an army. He has a kingdom. He is advancing his kingdom. The question is not whether he's aligned with us. The question is, are we aligned with him? There are two sides right here. There are the people of God right here, and there's the enemies over here in Jericho, and there's about to be a battle. And the Lord shows up and appears to the people of Joshua to make sure it is clear that when they go in and when they get the victory, it's not because they're strong or mighty, it's because the Lord has led them into victory. The captain of the Lord's army is the Lord himself, and he is with Joshua, and Joshua is on his side. He says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. I don't align with you, you align with me. Now what I love the most about this encounter is it reveals to us two sides of the Lord that we don't often see together. But two sides of the Lord that are absolutely inseparable, two sides of the Lord to which if not understood properly, we will never properly respond to the Lord. Let me give them to you. The first one is this, it reveals the Lord is a gracious savior. If you're taking notes, write that down. The Lord is a gracious savior. You say, Pastor, I know it's Easter and you're trying to give us some good news, but I don't see anything about the Lord as a gracious savior here. Let me tell you, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible is because it's impossible to take a text isolated from the rest of the text and understand it right. 
And so what we do is we walk through the books of the Bible. So by the time we get to the end of Joshua 5, we're also aware of what's happened in the first few chapters. And one of the things that has become clear as we've got up to this point is that the Lord is constantly displaying his grace by making himself known and giving everyone an opportunity to come to him. You know, in Joshua chapter 2, the spies go in and Rahab says to them, Everyone has heard what happened in Egypt. Everyone has heard about the Red Sea. Everyone knows that the Lord's people are on the move and everyone is terrified. And then you get to Joshua chapter five and it says in Joshua chapter five, verse one, that when the people come over the Jordan River, all of the kings are terrified because they know God's people are on the move. And it tells us in Joshua chapter nine that there's a group of people called the Gibeonites And they're so terrified that the Lord is on the move and so assured that they're about to be destroyed that they go to the people of God and make an alliance so they're saved and not destroyed. In other words, the Gibeonites understood that they were gonna be defeated, but instead of bowing themselves up and standing against the Lord, they submitted themselves to the Lord and they were saved. Jericho did not have to be destroyed. The king at that moment could have come to Joshua and said, listen, we understand that we're on the wrong side of history here. We want to align ourselves with you and they would have been saved. And one of the most beautiful examples of all, listen, is in Joshua chapter two, when we get that little story of Rahab. The reason it's important is because we're gonna start going through in the book of Joshua and all of these battles where entire nations are being destroyed and we're gonna say, that doesn't seem like the Lord to me. But you're going to look back at all of the opportunity that has been given the people to respond. And you're going to think of Rahab, who was a prostitute, who had spent her entire life living in immorality, who lived in the walls of Jericho so that any man coming in or out might be able to stop at her house. The spies met her and she said to the spies, we know the Lord is on the move. I want to be saved. And she was saved. Pointing us to the fact That if God can save Rahab the prostitute, God can save anyone. That God has sufficient grace to save anyone that chooses to trust and follow him. And that's exactly what Rahab did. And even at this moment, there's all of this waiting that's happening in Joshua 1 through 5. They wait before going across the river. They wait when they get on the other side of the river. Do you realize all of that waiting is giving the nations more opportunity to respond? Do you realize you being here this morning is a display of the patience of God giving you an opportunity to trust and follow him. This reveals that the Lord is a gracious savior. But on the other side, it reveals that the Lord is a just warrior. Let's don't take just one of those sides. The Lord is a just warrior. Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And right in the context in which it says that in Exodus 15, God is about to completely destroy the army of the Egyptians. And right now he is about to go in and completely destroy the Canaanites, that God's army is on the move. And Joshua 5 clarifies that the victory is not because of their strength, the victory is because of the Lord. But listen to me. What you're going to see in the rest of this book is a picture of God's just wrath you will see a warrior God that is marching through, advancing his kingdom through his people, and they are destroying all of these nations. But it is a picture of the just wrath of God. Because in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 18, three different times it tells us the reason the nations are destroyed is because of their own sin and wickedness. 
These are not innocent nations. These are nations who had been given an opportunity to respond to the Lord. They had time after time after time to say to the people of God, we're on the wrong side, we want to align ourselves with you, and they would have been saved. But instead of doing that, they ignored the Lord, they rebelled against the people of God, and what we discover is this, anyone who rebels against the Lord and decides to stand against him always loses. What God is doing is pouring out his just wrath. The, the wages of sin is death. They're experiencing the just punishment for their sin. The Lord is a gracious Savior, and the Lord is a just warrior. I say, Pastor, this is great. I, I appreciate it. It's good to understand this a little bit more. But I have to be honest, this is the worst Easter sermon I've ever heard in my life. He said, I brought friends this morning. I mean, I, you know, I was hoping you were like, dressed up as an Easter bunny and give out eggs or something. I wore pastel. What else can I do? I mean, you're thinking, listen, this is, this is not exactly kind of the exciting message that I was expecting on Easter, but the truth is that it may not be the Easter sermon you expected, but it's the Easter sermon you need. Because the reality is we celebrate Easter because we're celebrating Jesus Christ, and Jesus is God in the flesh, the very image of God. When we see Jesus, we're seeing God himself. And what we see in Jesus are the same two sides of the Lord's character we see right here. And there is no time in all of Jesus' life that we see these two things together better than we do at Easter. Easter is a revelation that Jesus is a gracious Savior and Jesus is a just warrior. I mean, think about it with me for just a minute. Jesus is a gracious Savior. Everything in the Gospels points to this. If you have not taken the time to read the Gospels, the first-hand accounts of the life of Jesus, I beg you to do so. If you wonder about the mercy and the grace of Jesus, read the Gospel of Luke. And you will see that the greatest critique against the ministry of Jesus was this. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. That this whole group of outcasts, who the religious institution wanted nothing to do with are the exact ones that Jesus went to minister to. That he went out of his way, not just to welcome them if they came, but he went to seek and to save the lost, displaying just like the Lord did with Rahab, that there is no extent to the grace of God if you will come and humble yourself before him. The Lord Jesus just oozes with grace and love and mercy. And every encounter you see of Jesus is an outpouring of his incredible mercy and grace. I pray somehow that God would help you to understand the depth of love that he has for you. And his ability to take away any sin that you've committed. To wipe away your past and remove not only the sin, but the shame that has accompanied that. Why? Because Jesus is a gracious Savior. There's no place in which this is seen more than the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you realize when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it is at the end of a sinless life. Do you know the wages of sin is death? Death exists because sin exists. So how is it that a man that has never sinned is dying a criminal's death? The answer is this, because he's not dying for his sin, he's dying for yours. That he's at that moment taking upon himself all of the sins that you have ever committed as an outpouring of his grace and love. What he has said is this, I will die in your place. 
And at that moment, all of the righteous wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ to the point where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that that wrath might be removed from you, placed on Christ, and then you instead might get his righteousness. There is no question he is a gracious savior. He's a gracious savior. Do you know that Jesus is also a just warrior? Jesus is a just warrior. You know, one of the reasons people were so disappointed with Jesus is because he's not what they wanted. They wanted a Joshua. They wanted a Moses. They wanted someone who would deliver them from the Romans. They were really hoping that Jesus would come and establish a kingdom on earth and destroy all of his enemies like we're seeing here in Joshua 5, 6, and 7. But that's, that's not what they got. They didn't get the Jesus they wanted, but they got the Jesus we needed. But listen, Jesus came as a just warrior. Every moment of his life, Jesus was waging war. Think about this. Mark chapter one, Jesus gets baptized. He begins his ministry. What's the first thing he does? He goes to the wilderness where for 40 days he does battle with Satan. For 40 days he goes and is tempted day after day by Satan. He comes down after 40 days, having defeated after 40 days of battle, Satan and all of his temptations. He comes down off of the mountain. He goes into the synagogue. And in the synagogue, a demonic spirit speaks out of a man. And he says, we know who you are, O Holy One of God. Jesus declares his victory. He shuts up the demon, rebukes it, and it leaves, declaring that he has come to wage war against demonic forces. Then he goes to Simon Peter's house where his mother-in-law is sick and seeing the, the, the weight of sin and its consequences in sickness, Jesus cast out the sickness and she stands up and begins to serve them. Every bit of that was warfare. Jesus coming to wage war against death and sin and hell. And then the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13 says he is delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son. All of that is warfare language. Delivered from this kingdom where we were oppressed and enslaved. And do you know that if you do not know Christ, it doesn't matter how free you feel, you are spiritually dead and disobedient and doomed and enslaved to your sin. You can't help but sin. And so it is in that place of bondage, Jesus Christ died so that you might be rescued from the domain of darkness and brought to the kingdom of his beloved son. And there you see Jesus on the cross, crucified and forsaken and dying. And it appeared that death was winning. Listen, but even on the cross, death wasn't winning. You know why? Because Jesus was dying so that you might escape the sting of death. And then he rose from the grave three days later to display publicly once and for all that the greatest enemy that you fight in your life, the one enemy that you can never overcome is the very enemy that Jesus defeated when he described and displayed that death could not hold him down. It's exactly why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came to wage war, and he got victory so that those who align with him could experience his victory. I spent the first two weeks of this year sitting 
beside my father as I watched him die. I know many of you have been through that experience. It's such a strange thing. So here we are in this beautiful dining room that my mother has decorated so perfectly and the table has been moved out, the chairs have been moved out, the rug has been moved out. There's just a hospital bed. And he's unconscious, but he's breathing. And we have no idea how much longer this is going to be. And there was this one moment in which all the rest of the family would, had left and there was an old rocking chair sitting there and I just sat there. I just wanted to feel the weight of that moment. And as I sat there watching my dad die, just was overcome with a feeling of absolute helplessness. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't stop that. My dad literally received care for his specific disease from the best doctors in America for that. He flew across the country to get the best possible medical care. They could not stop it. I could not stop it. He could not stop it. There's nothing we could do to stop that moment of death. It's coming for every one of us and none of us can stop it. What I realized at that moment is that if my dad did not know the Lord, then death wins. Death wins. That at that moment in which he dies, that's it. The best he ever was going to experience was already gone. He had already gotten the best of everything. Because what was next is the entrance into eternity without Christ in hell. And everything was lost after that. That if it's not for Christ, death wins. But my dad did know Jesus. And because he knew Jesus, as painful as it was, and as much it seemed to sting, and as much as we wept, we did not grieve as those who have no hope, because we knew this. At the moment in which my dad dies, he enters into the presence of the Lord, where for the very first time, he experiences better life than he's ever experienced before. That his greatest moments on earth were just a taste of what he's going to experience for all of eternity. Why? Because he aligned himself with the Lord. And the Lord had already defeated death. And the Lord had already ensured his victory. And because my dad had aligned himself with the Lord, the Lord's victory was my dad's victory. That's the glory of the resurrection. That Jesus is a just warrior and we must see him that because he's fighting a battle that we cannot win. And the reason you can win over sin, the reason you can win over addiction, the reason you can win over temptation, the reason you can win over shame, the reason you can win over insecurity, the reason you can win over death and hell is because Jesus already won all of those battles. You, you just got to get on the winning side. I was reflecting this week on all that is true for us because of Jesus. I was reminded of this old Puritan poem. Listen to this and we'll be done. It says, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. He was cast off that I might be brought in. He was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. He was surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. He was stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink. He was tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory. He entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all the tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song. He endured all the pain that I might have unfading health. 
He bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. He bowed his head that I might uplift mine. He experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. He closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. He expired that I might live forever. The truth is, there's just only two sides. There is those who will receive upon themselves the just wrath of God because of their failure to let Jesus take it for them. And there are those who will respond like Joshua did with humility and submission and faith and will choose to trust and follow Jesus, align their lives with him, and what they will experience is that all of that wrath has been removed from them and Jesus already took care of it so you don't have to ever be afraid again. The question is this, is which side are you on? If you're on the Lord's side, I plead with you to keep trusting and following him. I plead with you to worship him and give him the fullness of your life because that's what he deserves. And any sacrifice you make here will be rewarded a hundredfold in eternity. And if you are not on his side, align with him today. Trust him, follow him, recognize that you are on the wrong side of history. And it is only when you align with him that you will win and know life. Pray God's grace that you would do that. Inspire heads and close our eyes this morning.